Our reading this morning comes from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. So that's James 4, 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, it is, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And may God grant us understanding of his word. Well, my name is uh, Steve, if we haven't met. I'm not the Steve that was on holidays and has rushed back here to deliver a sermon. I'm actually another Steve. Uh, There's quite a few Steves around KPC from what I know. Um, What I'm going to do quickly is just pray so that um, we can ask God's help in our understanding of what uh, we've just heard. So pray with me quickly. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. Lord, I pray that the the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts this morning uh, would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, on April 15th, uh, 1912, something very significant happened. Uh, a passenger liner, famously called the Titanic, hit an iceberg and sank to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this all happened on her maiden voyage, and it took around 15,000 lives with her. It's a disaster that shook the world, not only because of the life lost, but also because the Titanic was supposed to be the unsinkable ship. Uh, In many respects, um, it really was unsinkable. For example, it had many uh, cutting-edge and well-thought-out safety features, such as watertight compartments all around the hull uh, that could be sealed off individually. It also had the best radio system of its day, able to make contact halfway around the world. They had plenty of life vests, uh, enough for everyone on board, in fact, And they also had the correct number of lifeboats according to the regulations of its day. And if this isn't enough, the the builders of the Titanic, the very people that worked on this thing, assured everyone that it was absolutely 100% unsinkable. In fact, they went so far as to say not even God could sink the ship, or so they thought. But we all know how the story ends, don't we? And on April 15th, 1912, Disaster struck, and the Titanic in all of her glory sank to the bottom of the ocean, taking many with her. And so the question on everyone's mind is, how did this happen? How did the unsinkable ship sink? How did a passenger liner with all the -the state-of-the-art safety technology, a boat which was designed not to sink, then cause the deaths of so many people? Uh, James Cameron, uh, he made a movie about this in 1997, 
Uh, he's a director, but he also had a very uh, particular interest in the Titanic. Uh, he'd searched for the wreck in a submarine and gone down and seen it for himself. Uh, he knew all about its ornate and grand design. Um, this was a very, very luxurious boat. Um, it was both aesthetically pleasing, but it also was functionally incredibly safe. But he concluded that the problem that caused it to sink was ultimately caused by an unseen force. An unseen force, which James Cameron called human arrogance. You see, its reputation as the epitome of luxury, the beauty of its grand staircase, the squash courts on board, the orchestras, the opulent dining areas, and all the other things designed to make a passenger's trip comfortable, that along with its reputation as the greatest and safest passenger liner ever built meant that ironically, many safety measures were overlooked or not taken into account. So, for example, on the day of her maiden voyage, uh, there were safety exercises scheduled, which they cancelled. Some of these safety exercises involved how to fill and deploy the lifeboats, which at the time of the incident meant that many of them went out partially full. Additionally, the radio crew, the people manning those systems, were given numerous ice warnings about their journey. But after chatting with Captain Smith, they discussed these issues back and forth he decided they didn't need to pass on the messages anymore. In fact, the messages of the passengers to their loved ones back at home were more important. So more ice warnings went unnoticed because they were deemed unnecessary information for the trip. Had these warnings been heeded, well, the captain may well have adjusted the speed of the ship, maybe even the direction of the ship. Who knows? But you see, somewhere along the lines in this tragic story, Human arrogance appeared. It began as human ingenuity. It began as human ambition, both of which are great things, but it crossed over into human arrogance, an unseen but deadly force which resulted in the disaster which we now know of as the voyage of the Titanic. Now, this attitude, this attitude of human arrogance, this is at the centre of James's concern here in 4.13 to 17. Specifically, he's addressing uh, Christians in the church who have made the fundamental mistake of completely removing God from all of their plans rather than having him at the centre of all that they think and do. It's an important passage, I think, for us to look at this morning as we consider the massive year that was 2020 just behind us, a year which felt wild and out of control and look forward to 2021 as Christians. We look forward to 2021 with the hope that things will be better. But we need to be careful not to make the mistake of excluding God from all of our plans in 2021, in thinking that in a humanist kind of way, we can solve all of our deepest problems. Now, if we take a step back, because um, we're going to be going through James in um, the next couple of weeks, um, I want to just give us a brief understanding of his thesis, uh, if we could call it that. James's main uh, prerogative in this book is that if you are in a genuine relationship with Jesus, then your whole life should be transformed visibly. Your speech should be different. Your actions, your motivations, how you manage your time, 
and how you plan your lives and so on. You know the old saying, they talk about going with the flow or, or driving with the traffic. Well, as, in, as Christians, in reality, we're meant to be fundamentally countercultural. There's a sense in which we should be somewhat offensive because all of our motivations and plans have stopped in their tracks and been reoriented because of the grace shown to us in Jesus. In other words, we should now want to live in accordance with God's will and be reliant upon him for everything in life. But as we'll soon see, uh, there are those in James's church, uh, merchants specifically here, who have become so confident of their own plans, they look no different to the rest of the world. They've left no room to consider where God might fit in their plans. In fact, James goes on uh, to say that these people, or he implies at the very least, that the concluding thoughts to their plans is that these plans are unsinkable that not even God could change the outcome. Yet as Christians, we all believe in the simple fact that everything, from the atoms that make up the universe to the the creatures that roam the earth to the stars, uh, the spiralling galaxies, we believe that they all rely on God for their continual existence. And for us, this means that every breath we breathe, every heartbeat we have is a gift from God. And when we consider this, to then turn around and act as if we are the masters of our destiny, you know, the captains of our soul, as Invictus, that poem Invictus says, when we consider this, we realize, when we realize that God is in control of every heartbeat, well, then there's an, an astounding arrogance then to turn around and think that we then are in full control of everything. And just like those who had built the Titanic, and deemed that not even God could sink it, James is reminding us to humble ourselves and to consider where our King and Saviour Jesus fits into our plan for the year ahead. That's an extended introduction into today's talk. Uh, There are going to be three points. They're going to be quite short. Um, They're on the outlines.kpc.org.au, so if you pull up your smartphones and you want to follow along, you can there. Uh, But the three points are, one, this passage is for everybody. Two, your life is like a mist. And three, we ought to say, if it's the Lord's will. So we're going to begin at point one. Uh, This passage is for everybody. Well, have you ever had those moments uh, where you're sitting uh, in a coffee shop, maybe riding the bus, maybe just minding your own business somewhere, reading a book, whatever it is, and you overhear a conversation that kind of pricks your your ears a bit, you sort of go, ooh, wonder what's going on there. Something that someone has said that captures your attention. Well, the first thing we're privy to here is a discussion probably overheard by James himself, which caught his attention from some of his congregants. And he hears them saying, today or tomorrow, we will go into this or that city spend a year there, carry on business and make money. The first thing you're probably thinking is, what's wrong with that? Is making money a bad thing? Is running a business a bad thing? Is is doing international business a bad thing? And the answer to the question is absolutely not. Not at all. In fact, to some degree, the the plans that we read in verse 13 are there to be commended because they're extremely well thought through. Uh, These merchants, for example, they've planned the date. 
today or tomorrow. Uh, they've organised the place. They say this or that city. Uh, they've discussed the length of their business venture, so approximately a year, about a year. And they know what they're going to do with their skills. They're going to carry on business and make money. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of this. There's nothing wrong with making money, with running a business, making a profit. In fact, James himself says in verse 15 that it's okay to do, quote, this or that, indicating that it's not, it's not the plans that are the problem here. You can do just about anything you want. Rather, the problem stems not from what's been said by these merchants, but rather from what hasn't been said. It's what we could call the sin of omission, when something that they should have done wasn't done, that they ignored something. And these merchants in this passage, they had meticulous, well-thought-out plans. But what they should have said, according to verse 15, is if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. However, instead, we're told that they boast in their arrogant schemes. See, the plans aren't the issue here. It's the arrogant attitudes of those making them. And if we understand this, then we'll very quickly understand why the passage applies, not just to merchants, not to business owners, but to you and to me and to everyone hearing. In two years, I'll work hard, finish my degree at UQ and graduate with honours. In five years, I'll work the investments and I will have saved up enough money to retire comfortably. Next year, I will find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. We will marry, have three kids, and eventually buy our first home. In the next 10 years, we will build a building on Pullenvale Road. We'll have a f***ing ministry with skilled pastors at the helm. We'll have a healthy congregation with room to grow and skills and enough everything else, resources to plant healthy churches. You see, just about any plans we can think of can be substituted in here. And in fact, I think that's why James uses a couple of vague terms like today or tomorrow and this or that, because he's leaving room uh, for his readers to insert themselves into the narrative to then hear what he has to say. Because it's not about the plan itself, as I've said numerous times, it's the attitude of those behind these plans. So the first thing I want to make very, very clear is that this passage is for you. It's for every single person in this room. And if this passage is for you, then everything else James says here is now applicable to all of you. And this brings us to point two. Uh, your life is a mist. Now, I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, uh, life's too short, dot, 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 and then fill in the blank. Uh, life's too short to drink bad wine. Life's too short to weigh your cornflakes. Now, before I get accused of using yet another cereal analogy, uh, that one actually came from Google's suggestions. You type in life's too short, and, you know, it gives you fill in the blanks. It's a very common phrase. Uh, we use it all the time. Uh, we often use it, though, to justify actions or behaviours which lead to self-indulgence or justifying a bad decision. Uh, life's too short to drive boring cars. Now, I take particular offence to that one because I drive a Prius. But interestingly, in this passage, James appears to agree with this sentiment to an extent. 
Only his emphasis is that life's too short for us to ignore God. Um, do you guys remember what cold is? Do you know what cold is living in Brisbane? <laughs> Happens for a few days in the year. You know, it gets just a little bit chilly. You might walk out onto your veranda and if you're lucky, you'll breathe out and you'll see that, that vapour that kind of comes from your mouth. Well, if on these cold mornings you wanted to show someone the vapour, you wouldn't stop, go, and try and catch it, would you? You wouldn't go up to someone with the vapour in your hands and go, look, look at the mist. Not at all. Instead, you know what you would do? You would simply breathe out again a second time. It takes a new breath for you to show people the vapour because the old breath is now gone. And much like this, James is saying you can't capture your life and your plans and walk up to another and go, look at my life, look at these grand plans because he says they're like a mist. Before you know it, they're already gone. Now, this idea of the the brevity of life, it's a very common uh, thought all throughout the Bible. I'll bring up a couple here. We've got Isaiah 40. Uh, He talks about life being like the grass that withers and the flower that falls. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Uh, That song we sang at the beginning, Blessed Be Your Name, that comes from Job. Here's what Job has to say about life. He says in Job 7, my life is but a breath. Sounds very similar to James. In Job 13, he equates his life to that of a wind-blown leaf. It's just so insignificant. It just tumbles along by a gentle breeze. He equates the days of human life in chapter 8 with a shadow. Psalm 39, he says, Lord, let me know how fleeting my life is. See, the Bible clearly shows us how short our lives really are, especially in relation to eternity. But more than that in James is the fact that we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. So not only are our lives short, but we don't really have any control over the next day. Now, I have very uh, vivid memories in 2006, particularly in September, because two very big things happened within the space of a week. Crocodile hunter Steve Irwin was stabbed by a stingray and he died. Racing legend Peter Brock later that week died in an accident. Both of them were completely unexpected. And it was a weird few weeks for me pondering some of this stuff and even for some of my friends because we suddenly realised as as older teenagers that life is kind of fragile, (laughs) that we weren't as invincible as we once thought. It's hard to ignore the fact that our lives are a vapour when two iconic legends die within the space of five days. Yet it also reinforces the fact that no matter how important you are, no matter how famous you are, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how safely you drive your car, no matter how many good decisions you make in life, the sobering reality is that we're all one event away from meeting our maker In eternity. An earthquake. Wildfire. Global pandemic. A car crash. Sickness. War. 
Now, I'm not always a glass half empty kind of person. I realize the weight of what's being said here, but this is exactly what James wants his readers to understand. He says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, he is right. Steve Irwin, Peter Brock, all those on board the Titanic, none of them expected to die when they did. And yet these sorts of things happen all the time around the world, proving once again that we have very little control over even what tomorrow will bring us. This is also why, as Christians, we need to lay our plans uh, into the hands of God and not arrogantly boast as if we are all-knowing, as if we are invincible and all-powerful, as if we didn't need his providential care to keep our hearts beating every second of every day. You see, the absolute height of arrogance is knowing that every atom moves by the sovereign will of God only to then turn around and think that we are suddenly the centre of the universe. But thankfully, in the text we have before us today, James gives us a pretty clear-cut solution to this issue. He says, rather than boasting in our arrogance uh, by ignoring God and our plans, we should be saying, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will continue to live. This alone should reinforce the fact that the length of our days, as Dave said in the beginning, is governed by the hands of God. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Our plans will come to fruition if the Lord wills. Now, I'm sure we've all heard that phrase. You've probably heard people say, God willing, um, if the Lord wills, anything like that. This leaves us, though, with, with a couple of important questions to ponder. Right, what exactly does it mean to say, if the Lord wills? And the second thing, which I think is on a lot of people's minds, is, is what exactly is God's will for my life anyway? And this brings us to point three uh, in the outlines. We ought to say, if it's the Lord's will. So, God willing, if the Lord's wills, may it be. Some of you guys sitting here might love this phrase, Uh, You might use it every day in all of your plans. Uh, Some others of you might consider it somewhat of a problem phrase, though, because you think we shouldn't be using it as frequently as we do because it kind of turns into a a selfish magic mantra, you know, designed to sprinkle God's blessing on all of our plans in the hope that our plans and ideas uh, will somehow increase the odds of them succeeding because we've added that phrase in there for God to favour them. So what should we be saying as Christians? Well, the first step I would recommend is looking at how people spoke in the Scriptures. So I'll use Paul as an example here. Uh, In Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 4, for example, Paul is planning on visiting a couple of his churches, but he says he will do this if the Lord wills. However, before we jump to any conclusions, there are other times where this phrase is distinctly missing. So the end of Romans, Romans 15, Paul says, since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. However, now I'm on my way to Jerusalem. What's missing in there? 
See, what he's saying in this later one sounds eerily similar to the plans of that man in verse 13 of chapter 4 of James. So I think it's, it's clearly not about whether or not we use the phrase specifically in all of our plans. Rather, it has everything to do with what we mean when we speak. We don't have to use the phrase if the Lord wills all the time, in other words, but we definitely have to mean it regardless of how we speak about our plans. And this has huge implications for our plans for the new year as we look to the future. When we want to ask, what is God's will for my business, for my family, for my career or my love life? There's a sense in which we can and probably should plan for these things meticulously, figure out what plans are best, what plans work best for you, but as a follower of Jesus to then humbly sit down and ask God if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. In other words, it sounds pretty obvious, but we should begin to plan as though God actually exists. And as James points out in verse 15, we must acknowledge that all of our plans and our very lives lie in the hands of God. I know I've repeated myself several times, but this is the the key point to this entire passage. It says, if the Lord wills, we will live, we will continue to breathe. And if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But this might mean that his plans for your life challenge your own expectations of where you thought you might be. It may even counter your expectations in ways that are sometimes very painful. So I knew a family uh, studying at QTC. Uh, They found it very, very hard uh, to fall pregnant. They never intended or planned to have any of these issues, but ultimately all avenues, after a long struggle, all avenues to giving birth to their own biological kids was closed off to them. And the pain of seeing them in their own plans, seeing their plans crumble away from before their eyes and God leading them down another path was tricky. Now, he led them down the path to adoption. In their pain, instead of turning into themselves and into each other and becoming bitter, they turned to God through prayers and petitions and to the joy of raising two of their own adopted kids. Now, it might seem weird to talk this way, but but they speak of the blessing of having God change their plans. And they speak of what this did, saying that their confidence in him And his love for them was, in fact, strengthened. They found through this trial, everything about them and their relationship with God grew stronger. But it does raise the difficult question for all of us. The question of where do we turn to or who do we turn to when pain strikes? Do we turn into ourselves and look to our own skills and intellect and our own strengths? Do we turn to God in humility, though? Do we ask God to come and help us lead us through this? When we say, if the Lord wills, in other words, are we ready for God to say no and lead us down a different path? Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you know that, he certainly struggled with this. He had a will. He submitted himself to God's will 
in the face of a painful, agonizing, humiliating death. Now, it might appear difficult and confusing at times. However, I want to propose that sometimes what is worse than God not giving us what we want is God giving us exactly what we want. We just might not know it yet. Now, the last thing I want to address uh, is this big question of then what is God's will uh, for our lives? How should we be looking at 2021 with all of our plans, all of our aspirations? Well, believe it or not, the Bible actually has a lot to say about God's will. Uh, I'm going to go through uh, five quick verses on this here this morning. So firstly, 1 Timothy uh, 2.4. We read in that passage that it is God's will for people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So if you're not a Christian here today, uh, if you've stuck around after the the Christmas service uh, or the carols that we've had recently, um, or even if you are a Christian for that matter, the first step for everybody in understanding God's will is to know his desire for you to place your trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. The sin of acting as though he doesn't exist and planning like that. The sin of planning a life as if you know what's best as if you are the one in complete control, despite God's sovereignty over every atom in the universe. The second thing about God's will comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. We read, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, this one's another way of saying that God's will is that your life be changed as you follow him, which falls very much in line with what we read of in James and what we will over the next couple of weeks. Now, the mention of, of sexual immorality here, it's just another way of saying that we should be countercultural. We should be going against the flow because God has called us to live lives that are recognisably different to the watching world, lives that are honouring to God and to one another. The third one also comes from Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. We read, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A relationship with our Creator, it should bring us to rejoicing. It should bring us to giving thanks in all circumstances. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we won't ever feel sadness. It doesn't mean that we won't ever feel pain, uh, even sorrow uh, in this life. But the will of God is that through these difficult times, there will be an unquenchable joy of knowing God's goodness to us ultimately in Christ, which puts all of our very real pain into a new perspective. It's a foretaste of heaven where there will be no more pain and suffering, where every tear will be wiped away. And in this sense, God's will is what helps us look forward to what is to come, regardless of what is happening to us now. And that's a very useful tool when things start to turn pear-shaped, and and they probably will in 2021 for many of us. Lastly, uh, the last two passages, we have Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, and 1 Peter 2, 15. 
And these speak about God's will for us, making us look radically different to the watching world. Right? It kind of goes hand in hand with the sanctification one I mentioned uh, earlier. There's a sense in which our lives should be radically different to the world and that God in his kindness will show us what it means to live this way and how to do it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. You see, people should be able to look at your lives and immediately see that there is something different about you. And yet it is because your life has been transformed by Christ through his forgiveness and his love and through giving us the spirit which helps us live for him. Again, this goes back to the entire thesis of James's letter, that a life transformed by Christ should affect every area of our being. So what James is calling us to consider in the passage today is to plan and to live our lives with a conscious knowledge of who we are in relationship to God, a knowledge of our reliance on him for every single breath, but also to know and trust that he has our best interests in mind too. So when we look to 2021, when we have all of those New Year's resolutions, uh, whether that be to to land that job or that promotion, uh, whether it be to eat better, uh, to increase our business after the economic uh, difficulties of COVID, to learn to love our spouse or our kids better, to buy a house or anything else for that matter, all of which are good things, remember who enables us to do any of this and ask him to have the final say in all of our plans. You see, to rely on ourselves, to to boast as though we are the ones in control, as though we know exactly what next year will bring and how it will all turn out, well, this arrogance is exactly what caused the sinking of the unsinkable ship. James's reminder here is that life's too short to make plans without God at the centre of it all. So as we look to 2021, I want to encourage us to plan meticulously. Make what plans seem best to you for 2021, but be willing to say, whether in our hearts or out loud, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Let me pray. Father God, your word can be very cutting. Lord, sin from the very beginning was all about us rejecting you in our plans and deciding that our own plans were better. But Lord, we know from the biblical narrative that our plans, to the exclusion of you, lead us down to misery and brokenness, not only with you but with one another. Lord, please forgive us for the times where we may have been arrogant and boastful, where we may have thought the certainty of our futures relied upon ourselves and our skills, our intellect and our own strength. Lord, I pray that in your kindness uh, you would humble us gently and lead us into the path of trusting your son, Jesus, into the future. Lord, I pray as we look to 2021, as we think about all the resolutions that we may or may not have organised, as we think about our relationships with our friends and family, our careers, 
and all these other big life events. I pray that you would remind us uh, in our hearts to consider you at the centre of all these plans. Please remind us that we rely on you for everything and help us to give thanks and praise for every day you've given us on this earth. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.